and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In this podcast, the word courage is used a few times, so I thought we'd have a look at the etymology behind that word. It was first used in around the 1300s, and it meant heart as the seat of your emotions, as in your spirit, your temperament, state or frame of mind. In Old French, the word courage meant your heart or your innermost feelings or your temper. And of course, the Latin word for heart is core. So that's where that root comes from. From the late 14th century, it took on the meaning of valor or quality of mind, which enables you to meet danger and trouble without fear. And in this sense, in Old English, we had the word Ellen. So hello to all the Ellens out there, because your name means zeal or strength. Words for heart are commonly used as metaphors for inner strength. And so the word encourage literally means to give your heart to something. I am absolutely delighted today to welcome an incredible guest, an award-winning, utterly magical storyteller, poet and playwright who to date has written over 120 books, including such treasures as War Horse, Kensuke's Kingdom and Private Peaceful. A former teacher who went on to become children's laureate, I'm thrilled to welcome to the Word Up podcast today, none other than Sir Michael Morpurgo. Hello, lovely to see you. Michael, you come from a family of actors. I've been doing my research. I just thought, what was that like? Can you tell us what was that like for you growing up as a boy? Well, um, it was interesting. I didn't know my daddy because my daddy left for the war when I was very young. I was born in 1943. And I actually, he was, by the end of 1943, already out in, I think he was in Baghdad or somewhere. So I really didn't see him for the first couple of years of my life. And then my mother was an actor. My daddy was an actor. The one who wasn't there was an actor. So they were both actors. They met at RADA. Um, that's, I think, where they fell in love and where they did their first tours around the country in rep. So they were, they, they were, they were kind of growing together because of acting. However, my mother also came from a really strong performing arts background. Her uh, grandmother, my great-grandmother, mm. was a great opera star in the Victorian era who sung in front of Queen Victoria and sung... She was the, the first... An English singer to sing at Bayreuth, the, the Wagner, and all that sort of thing. She was a, just a phenomenon. Um, and my grandmother was also an actor. So they were all actors, 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 actors. But then, because of the war and because my parents separated, I had a stepfather. And my stepfather was an academic, a, a literary man, eventually ended up being a history editor at Penguin Books, writing lots of books himself, very learned, academic, really. And um, to some extent, to some extent, acting was a bit frowned upon that in the family. You've got to go do something sensible. Really? Um, a, a bit. Yes, it was a bit like that. Yeah. My mother was my mother was negated a bit in all this. She um, never acted again after she married my stepfather. That was the end of it. Mm. As happened to a lot of women, as we know, through the ages. But it was a family. They, they, she, she originally came, my mother, from a Christian socialist family, which was... Uh, very feminist and, and and very much up there for, for the beginning, if you like, women finding themselves and their self-confidence and, mm. and, and growing and breaking the glass ceiling all bit by bit by bit. And, mm. and she was on the way when she was within her first marriage, but then it, it did crumble a bit and there was uh, it wasn't 
pleasant for her at all. But because that died a bit, I think two things happened. First of all, it died a bit with me that this wasn't a thing that was going to be approved of. Yeah. And we kind of liked, we liked to do things that people yeah. approve of. The second thing was that I yearned to do it. I was in school plays all the time when I was at school. I loved it. Mm. What were you in? What did you do? Oh, God, the last play, last play I was in was called Morning Departure, which was on a, one of those, I was a submarine commander. <laughs> it was on those uh, plays written about in about 1950, post-war, and I was, I'm sure, corny as anything. I was playing a sort of John Mills character. Anyway, it was, I, I did like doing this sort of thing, and I liked performing. However, I did know that you needed courage to do it. I think actors need a phenomenal amount of courage. They're constantly doing risk, 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 risk. That's what they, and their lives are spent risking. Uh, winning sometimes, losing other times. And I don't know, at a certain point in time, I, uh, I don't know, I, I, I decided no, I, I wasn't good enough. I decided that uh, I, I, I really didn't have the courage, I think, to stand up there and, and do it, to learn my lines to do it. So I sort of threw that out the window. My brother, Peter, full brother, did go into acting and became a, a, a director and actually a director of the BBC in the end. So he was sort of, he stayed close to it. Very big part of your life, that whole performing arts world. It was, but just as much, it was a literary world because my grandfather was a great poet. He was the Rupert Brooke, really, of Belgium. He was, um, he, he was Belgian, grew up in Belgium and uh, wrote in, in French and during the First World War wrote great patriotic poems. Um, but he was a, quite a phenomenon and quite a, a talent and then came over here and then became an, an academic himself. But, so there were books everywhere. And my stepfather really made our house a place where there weren't walls. There were just bookshelves. The place was simply high with books everywhere you looked. Wow. Which had a bad effect on me because the compulsion was to read. And because he was a very bright man, he tended to make us read things that were quite difficult because he thought that would be good for us. Yeah. To stretch us. Actually, what it did was to put me off. I got my love of stories from my actor mother who loved to come and sit and read to us and perform, which she did beautifully. She could do all the voices and imitations and she could be humorous and she could be sad. And you really felt that she meant everything she was reading. Yeah. My brother and myself were sitting in bed aged four. Well, I was four. My brother was about six. He's two years older than me. And uh, we listened to stories night after night after night, just for 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, and she did it regularly. But then we went to school. Mm. And from then on, I don't know, it happens still today, I think, a bit. Mums and dads or grandma, whoever it is, inculcates in a child a love of stories, and then suddenly they go to school, and it's this serious stuff of having to learn spelling, and then it becomes testing. And before you know it, the stories have turned into a sort of testing regime, and uh, it puts a lot of people off. It put me off for years. and years. I never really became a reader until I was in my 20s, um, until I really began to start writing, and I was a teacher by that time. I think that really resonates. I think that really resonates. There's a real, there's a real difficulty, isn't there, in a tension between engendering that love of story and that love of character that your mother clearly, you know, create, created for you and, and reading to you, and then actually as a vehicle behind assessment, there's that difficulty in tension that we all feel in, in the profession, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was helped by there were two aunts who were teachers, I think rather wonderful teachers, both of them, and th they loved theatre. Mm. And so they would take us to all sorts of theatre. We'd go to uh, pantomime, we'd go to circus, and they were passionate about Shakespeare. 
So I was queuing with my brother Peter for tickets in Stratford when I was about six or seven years old. We would literally get up in the morning and be the first in the queue wow. at the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. Yeah. Um, on which I have to say my um, grandmother had acted and all sorts of things. So there were all sorts of strange connections there. So it, we, we were very connected to theatre quite quite early on, which is storytelling. So storytelling exactly. of all sorts, we love. Absolutely. It's one of those things that I've I treasured, really, that this notion that when you're reading to children or telling children a story, my mother did it not in a way trying to somehow make me literary or teach me something. She mm. never would ask a question about what it is that she'd been reading. She just told it. Mm. And she told it not as if she loved it. She did love it. Yeah. And to some extent, that narrowed what she read to us. So it, I was full of De La Mer and John Mayfield and, and Kipling and, and all sorts, you know. But that's fine. That was the vogue at the time. And that's what she read. That's what she'd grown up with. And she was just passing it on. And passing it on is, is what writers do. It's what teachers do. At best, that's what we're there for, really. Do you think that that was behind your decision initially to teach? Do you think that that was the inspiration for you? Well, to start with, I've got to be honest. It was, um, what do I do with myself? I came out of the army having thought, well, I like dressing up a bit and marching up and down, which I didn't, so I came out of that pretty fast. <laughs> and um, went to university. And yeah. university, in a way, decided me that I wasn't going to be an academic. I went to King's College London, and I read English and French. But in philosophy, wasn't much good at that. Got a third-class degree. So apparently that disqualifies me, I think, from being a teacher. Anyway, the, the, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great success because I was already married. I had two little children and student life really wasn't great. So I didn't know what to do. All I knew is I had to earn a living pretty quick. Mm. I knew I liked children because I'd already had two of them. <laughs> and they were okay? You liked them? <laughs> and I, I liked a lot of things I liked about schools when I was young. Um, so I thought, well, we'll try it. And it was luck. I just tumbled, as I think very often people do in life, into something that I liked doing. And then, yeah. quite without planning, discovered I could do it quite well. And that it involved, and I hadn't realised this, it involved a lot of play acting. Um, and, of course, I was then discovered that you need a lot of courage to be a teacher too, to stand up in front of yeah. 35 people who don't want to be there and yeah. very often some things they don't want to learn is, how should I say, it can be a little bit, what dreadful word, challenging. Mm. Um, and it's a performance of its own, isn't it? It is a performance of its own. Yeah. What sort of teacher were you? I think I was probably a pretty bad teacher because actually I only taught what I liked. <laughs> so I was teaching primary school um, and middle school, really. Mm. Um, and I think any one of my students who wished to have uh, some kind of really good grounding in, in mathematics would have a pretty poor time of it. Because I really didn't like that sort of thing at all. I did it. Yeah. Not with much uh, goodwill. But I concentrated hugely on stories, that is, telling them and mm. getting them to write their own. Mm. And I would say half the time I spent with my year sixes in my mobile classroom in this last little school I taught at, was with words of one sort or another. And of course, that was quite selfish because I knew perfectly well why I was doing it. I was playing with words myself, trying to find out if I could do this storytelling thing. Mm. I read a wonderful book um, by Ted Hughes called Poetry in the Making, which I think was a radio program on Radio 4 Schools Radio at some point. Anyway, what it is is the most marvellous introduction to young writers 
basically what he's doing, he's holding out his hand and said, look, we can all do this stuff. We can all do it. It's not, it's not uh, difficult, mm. but you have to apply yourself and you have to mean it. You have to soak the world in around you. And that is what you use for your writing. That's where it all comes from. Your memories and the world around you and all that. And he started opening my mind to the possibility that I could be a storyteller myself. Um, and once I'd had that possibility, as you know, once the thing is offered to you, mm. you like the idea, you begin to explore it. Yeah. And then I got seriously brave one day, really brave. I had been reading a book from three to half past, which is what I did every afternoon to my year six people. And they were, normally they'd listen. I did what my mother did. I read with great conviction. Mm. Only read the books that I loved. And I'd started this book and it wasn't working. And I thought of giving, I thought of giving up. I went back home and I said to my wife, Claire, who's also a teacher, I don't really know what to do. Do I go on with this book? I don't, don't I? And she said, well, look, if they're bored, don't do it. That's kind of the first thing you shouldn't do with children in class is to bore them. Don't do it. Mm. It's a brave move, though, isn't it, to give up on a book? It is. It is. Yeah. And then the next thing was even braver, because what she said to me was, look, you, 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 you're quite good at telling stories. You know, you, you tell lies pretty well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why, why don't you go in there tomorrow and tell them a great lie stroke story? Just tell it as you tell them. You, you're really good at it. I've heard you telling stories to our own children. Try it in a classroom, it won't hurt. So I did lie awake all night, all night, all night, all night, trying mm. to work out a little plot. And I went in there, and at 3 o'clock the next day, I said, not doing that book anymore. You didn't like it. And they all said, oh, sir, don't care. I've been lying awake all night making up a story. You're going to hear my own story. And uh, I just started, and that was the bravest thing I ever did, was to stand up in front of these 35 expectant faces and tell something I'd made up. Wow. Because they, they don't hold back, do they? No. So for five or ten minutes, you know, they were looking out the window. And I don't know what it was. I think it was because they didn't look happy about it, that it spurred me on to be even more involved in the story than I was before. So I lived the story in front of them. Mm. and. I think they suddenly thought this is this is weird. This is a teacher who's who's you can hear a tremble in his voice, you can hear a laugh in his voice. I wasn't putting it on, it just was in the story. Mm. And they listened, they they listened because they knew it was somehow real. This was a connection between people. And I realized it too after about 10 minutes, I knew something was happening. And then by the end of the, the half an hour, just as the bell went, I hadn't finished. The bell went and I said, Well, maybe more tomorrow. And they all went, yeah, 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 it was lovely. I had them, but the yeah. great thing about it was I loved doing it myself. So I just found that this thing was a, a connection between the children and myself. The stories that I was telling were really connecting with them. And that, I think, gave me a bit of a buzz. And I thought, well, I like doing this. And I went on doing it day after day after day for three and a half hours. And then the head teacher came in. She was called Mrs. Stiffington. Remember very, very well. She sat in the back of the class and she came up to me afterwards. She said, that was very good, Michael, very good. I want you to write it out for me and give it to me on Monday morning. Now, I'd never been talk, talked to like that since I was about 10. And, but she was sweet. She was really sweet about it. And so I did, and I gave it to her. And she said, well, look, look, send it off to the, a friend I've got who's an editor. So I sent it off, and I got a letter back. It was the most wonderful letter I think I've ever had in all my publishing time. Because the first is so important. Dear Mr. Moore, bingo, or whatever they said. <laughs> we really like your story. Could you write five more and we will pay you 75 pounds? Wow. And I suddenly thought to myself, you know, roll doll, eat your heart out. This yeah. is it. 
yeah. Uh, and it, and lo the lovely thing was, I'd found something I really liked doing. Yeah. And uh, it's a happy accident. Sorry, I've gone on a bit, but that's what no, it was. No, no, it's fascinating for us to listen to. And what a great testing ground you had with a class of 30 year sixes hanging on your every word. Because if you can capture them. Yes, year sixes are, um, I won't say challenging, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they are, they've got minds of their own. They've got tastes of their own. And of course, it didn't work every time. And when it didn't work, you kind of knew why it wasn't. Mm. It was dwelling on something too much. The thing wasn't moving on. I learned really to be a storyteller rather than a writer. Yeah. And do you think that that was what really engaged your pupils in their own writing, was listening to the stories and worlds that you were creating do you know what i think people really like i think they love it when a performer whoever it is whether it's a teacher or an actor or whoever takes a risk like children can see you're taking a risk you know you're you're flying by the seat mm. of your pants that's interesting uh, yeah and they quite i think they respond to that they think it's honest and they're right you are trying yeah. to connect properly and there's nothing between you and them you're not holding up a book or a sheet of paper looking over the top of it at them mm. this is coming from in here it's it's me yeah and uh, they i think they like that they, they they think it's something that's genuine and the other thing i did and i made made it very clear and it was partly because of mrs giffington was also myself is that i did learn one thing that if stories are treated as if they are texts and the children know that a whole bunch of questions are going to come afterwards mm. And that that's what it's for. Mm. In other words, the teacher's only doing it for its end purpose, um, which is a test, mm. or which is somehow testing you in public, because very often comprehension is, is done out loud in front of people. Well, that does two things. The one is really good. It makes someone feel really good because I got the answer right, or because I gave the answer and I felt good giving it. it the, an equal number of people had the opposite effect. Mm. It makes them feel stupid. And I, I had had that at school myself a lot, this business of not feeling, and I, it carried on right the way through university, through, through university. I was very well able to say that I liked a piece of poetry. I wasn't so good at explaining why. Mm. And of course it made you feel, if it is an academic test you're going through, it makes you feel quite small. So I, I really did make a point of letting the children leave this mobile classroom walk across the playground, join their mums uh, outside the schoolyard and walk home with the story in their head. And I never asked them a single question about it. And I think in a way that was the magic of it. It was not simply um, school. It was story. Yeah. Fascinating to, to hear. I think what you're describing as well if for us is that teacher in role work that we often do, you know, and, and that takes risk. It does take risk for a teacher to, to, you know, become a character or to live a story for their classes because you, you're giving something of yourself. You are, and you are risking making a fool of yourself. It took me years, for instance, to dare to try accents out on people. <laughs> What's your best accent, Michael? What's your best one? Oh. It's Billy Collinley. I mean, you know, I, I can do, I don't do Scottish, <laughs> I do Collinley. And I mean, what the really good thing about it is that it makes you relax, you know, mm. because it doesn't even matter if you get it wrong. They don't care if you get it wrong. Mm. It's even more fun if you do get it wrong. Yeah. If you yeah. go from Scottish to Irish, or for, you are speaking a bit French like this, and suddenly you're speaking like Billy Connolly, they think it's a giggle. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. And in, in a way, it's that business of relaxing into the story and hoping, hoping. Uh, that, that, that you can hold them enough. And that, that comes, I suppose, the, the reason I got to enjoy it so much is I reckoned I was 
good enough at it to enjoy it. I knew it didn't work at the time. What I did know is this, that many of them became writers because of it. I'm in touch with many of these young people who are now... Oh, you have lovely. Yeah, and I mean, that's really lovely about being a bit of an author. They put your name on the back of the book and they can write to you. Yeah. And so you do get these letters from someone. They're in their 50s now, 60s, some of them. And they, they, they remember the classes that you taught. And I made a great point of doing, as Ted Hughes said in Poetry in the Making, is not ever, ever sitting in front of an empty piece of paper, as it was then, no screens, empty piece of paper, and starting. And his great notion is that you've got to use your eyes, you've got to use your ears, you've got to use your heart, your sense of smell, mm. everything. Mm. And you've got to go out and discover, you know, discover the world for yourself. Don't try to write anything until you know what you want to write about, until you care about what you want to write about. And in a way, because I learned that way myself, yeah. memory is very important. My own experience of life with these children I was teaching was very important. I brought the children into the stories all the time. I wove their lives in and out of each other, which they loved because they became part of the story. The names became part of the story. The places that they knew all around became part of the story. The rivers they played in and the streets they played in and the conquer tree they got their conquest from. They were all in the story there. And I think it was that it was that sense of what is around you is really important. Yeah. Your mum and your dad and your family and your dog uh, and, and scuffling through leaves on the way and the frost in the grass when you come out in the morning and the fact is you don't walk down that road because there's a dog who's going to come and bite you. All the fears and things that yeah. come out. All those real experiences. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's detail, detail, detail. And they fill your books. They fill your stories. And I think um, they got to realise that it's OK to write about this stuff. The other thing I made a strong point, and I still go on about it too much, I know, but is that I really thought that the most important thing they can do is to find their voice. Asteroid does. It gives them confidence you know, to speak how they feel about the world, about themselves. And that was really important to me, is they found this voice. So what I didn't ever want to do is to let that become inhibited by mm. a focus on neat handwriting, on too much punctuation, um, all that sort of thing. Uh, I said, the first time you write anything down, I don't care how badly it's written, I don't care about the spelling, I don't care about the punctuation. That can be fixed later. Mm. When you're writing it out, because obviously we've got to read it, I tell them there's no point in writing if no one can read it. So that's quite important. And I tried to sort of take this serious threat out of these things, because that is very often what kids get marked on. Still do. You know, that's not very good. It hasn't got a full stop. Where's your commas? Right, you've got to learn those things. I know they've got to be learned. But if they come before the joy of a story, either the enjoyment of it, reading or, or writing it, then you're going to put them off the story itself. So, and the familiarity of reading stories um, and of writing stories, the familiarity of doing it, the learning of grammar and the learning of punctuation will come with the doing of it. It won't come because there's a bunch of rules mm. um, which you then have to learn. And then, and then it's, oh, well, I, I'm not very good at that. Yeah. And then, then you won't want to write anymore. You won't want to express your stories. Yeah, it's it's really important, isn't it, that we foster that love that you're talking about for, for story writing. I was reading the other day that um, Stephen King, when he writes, says, you should go with the first word you thought of. And I was thinking about that and thinking, well, I don't know if I agree with that. And I, I wondered what your take would be and how you choose your words when you're writing. Do you go with the first word you think of? I think for me... It sounds awful, but I, I don't choose a word at all. I'm telling a story, 
and I'm using words. My vocabulary, I don't think, is any um, greater, wider than anyone else's. But if you do that often enough, the right word seems to come out mm. for the right moment. If when you then read it through, you realize that's too strong a word, and you're um, somehow, because the word is too strong, uh, too much of a metaphor in the word, you're taking away from the original meaning of the line that you're writing, then you change it. Mm. I, think it's, uh, I think he's right in one sense. What, what's not good is if you spend an awful lot of time thinking about the word you should use. Because the word you should use may be the right word, it may not be the right word. The great thing is to tell it. Mm. So again, when I am teaching people, old or young, about writing or trying to pass on what I know about it, what I try to get across to them is not to write it at all. So physically, and I mean physically, what I say really is this, that you've, got, this, you've had the story in your head, mm. sometimes for months and years. Let's call it dream time. You've dreamt the story up over many, many months and years, and you're telling this story down. You tell it down after you're once upon a time and you've got going. Mm. You tell it down through your arm, through your fingers, onto the page. That's how you tell it. And when I'm talking to you now, and it's the same with all of us, I'm not thinking of what words say. I'm trying to express what I'm, what I mean, what I feel. Mm. And sometimes I'm not doing very well. Sometimes you have to go back over it again and make it clearer later. That doesn't matter. And writing to me is the same. It's the same as speaking, and it's on the page. And you must have all the chance in the world to go back. It's why exams are so stupid, um, because people are the same. Myself, my children are the same. That and that. You have to perform onto the page within a certain amount of time, and very often people don't have that facility, which is what it is, to, to actually make it perfect to start with. Mm. Uh, my, my, if you saw my manuscripts, I mean, I wouldn't pass any exam anyway. They're completely illegible. I write far, far too fast. And when I'm excited, when it's going really, really well, the writing gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. There's only one person in the world who can read it, that's <laughs> me. And it, it, it's, it's really, I think, the excitement of writing is so, so important that you, you go with the flow of it. And you don't stop to think, ah, oh, I see, what word am I going to use now? The minute you stop, you become inhibited. Just tell it, tell it, tell it. Yeah. And same thing, am I going to use indirect speech? Am I going to use direct speech? Do it one way or the other. You can come back to it. Yeah, revisit. I've just written a story about a train. It's very bizarre. I always like to try to write stories about something I've never written about before. And I've mm. written about a lot of animals in my life, but I've never written about a train before. And I got the opportunity to write a train, a train story about a flying Scotsman. I found that completely fascinating. How do I make this, how do I connect this world of this train, which is going on a record run from King's Cross up to Edinburgh? And somehow I've got to make this interesting. So you think it out, you think it out. Well, what's really important is that somehow it's a people, every story doesn't matter about a train or not, it should be a people story. Mm. So it gets to know who's driving this train, who's driving this train. Oh, yeah, you have a driver. And that maybe that driver's got a daughter. Yeah, daughter who goes to school is really proud of a train driver driving a flying Scotsman. For goodness sake, you'd be proud as anything, wouldn't you? Yeah, you certainly you, would be. And you want to ride in it. And so it's a story really about how a girl tries to become a stowaway on her, her dad's train on the record breaking run. And before you, this is what these things tumble. The ideas tumble, tumble, tumble. Yeah. And your writing will reflect that. I mean, it'll reflect it. In, in the sense that it might be quite clumsy to start with. It doesn't matter, you can go back and, 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 and do it again and, and, and then read it out loud. That's the other thing. It's really good, I think, to read something out loud. Yes. 
you know, my wife gets very fed up because she has to hear everything out loud. And uh, <laughs> she very often says in the nicest possible way, I'd really quite like to read it myself, you know, uh, at my own pace. <laughs> but it's a big help to be able yeah. to hear the sound of the words, you yeah. know, the rhythm in the sentence. The rhythms and the patterns. The rhythms and patterns of this conversation continue next week. So join us again next Thursday for part two of Michael Morpurgo's fascinating world of storytelling. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.